Morning, guys. Hope you all are doing all right. Uh, Hope you've got your text, uh, your Stott text. Hope you're reading it. I think you would have noticed in the short section that we were to read for today that it's really helpful. Just very quickly gives you an expositional uh, overview. Uh, One of you complained that it was a little technical on some of the introduction, and I can understand why you were saying that. We'll come back to some of those things. I hope we'll clear it up for you. Hey, you know, something I always appreciate about Ole Miss guys is their extraordinary humility. You know, have you all noticed that? It's a funny thing. Fred wasn't talking last week before the Alabama game, but now with the Vanderbilt game. Yeah. You You Vanderbilt fans, though, are the most admirable people on the face of the earth. Talk about loyalty and patience. It's just absolutely extraordinary. So... All these great Christian attributes are coming out from these large football-based universities, you know what I mean? Uh, Of course, I speak as one from Virginia, and I should sing in lower key. Hey, we whomped up on William & Mary last week, uh, so we're very proud of that. Don't take it personally, Boots. Uh, We'll we'll, we'll triumph one of these days. Hey, uh, guys, we're looking at Romans, and we saw last time that uh, uh, Romans has been called by some the greatest piece of literature ever written. That's quite a statement. But certainly, uh, most scholars and evangelical uh, expositional preachers would say that here in Romans, you get the clearest and grandest and plainest explanation of the gospel of anywhere in the scriptures. Uh, And it's so crucial to our understanding about how you live the Christian life because uh, the Christian life is is lived by um, God's initiative And we contemplate what God has done for us, what he's doing for us now, what he's going to do for us later. It's a thinking man's religion because the ethic that we live comes out of our contemplation of what God has done for us. Our ethic is a reaction to his love for us. So understanding the gospel is crucial to us, not only in the assurance of our salvation, but in the uh, passion with which we live our lives. Uh, And by the way, I just want to say about you Alabama guys, if you consider that second stanza we just, we just sang about Jesus saves, we said, waft it on the rolling tide. So take the gospel to the rolling tide, because you know what? They need the gospel, don't they? No, they need the gospel. They need it bad. They need it bad. But they need a little encouragement this week. All right. So let's look at the gospel. Paul has uh, introduced himself. He's introduced his audience. And he's introduced the substance of what he's going to talk about. He said, uh, uh, I'm Paul, the servant of Christ. I'm set apart for the gospel of God. I'm writing to those of you who are called, just like I'm called to be an apostle, you're called to be saints. So we both are what we are by the initiative of God. God took the initiative to call me to be an apostle. And we know how surprising that is. Paul was the great enemy of the church, and God called him out. And you can expect, as we said, uh, some great evangelist, here in the days ahead, uh, was previously with ISIS. That's probably what's going to happen. Just you watch. Uh, God takes the initiative and does the miraculous. He converts us and then moves us into ministry. And he says, likewise, God took the initiative with you. He called you to belong to Jesus Christ. He called you for that purpose. He took the initiative. He called you to be saints. You don't have to wait until the Pope declares that you've been uh, sanctified and set apart Uh, for heaven. No, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You are set apart at that moment and destined for sure for heaven. That's what's taught in in Romans and elsewhere. So Paul says you're called to be saints, to be those who are set apart for his service. And then he says in verse 7, you remember from last week, that he says to all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, look at the benefits of the gospel. Grace to you, and peace. Grace, that is that God will love you in spite of yourself. He doesn't love you because you, you love him. No, John says here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So he first loved us. And that's what grace is, that you were loved as you did not deserve it. It was unmerited. You couldn't possibly have earned it. In fact, you earned the opposite of his love. You earned his wrath, but he didn't give you his wrath. Not only did he not give you his wrath, he gave you his unadulterated love and drew you to himself. That's what he's done for you. So that's grace. 
And he says to the church, grace to you. Nobody else has that grace but God's people. They have common grace. The rain comes on the, uh, Jesus said, it falls on the righteous and on the wicked. The sun rises on the evil and on the good. There's common grace in nature until Jesus comes back. And then there will be this final division between sheep and goats. So there is common grace, but this is special grace. This is grace that saves and gives you eternal life. That's for the people of God. So he, in the gospel, gives us grace. And then he gives us peace. And we saw that this peace works in several directions. First of all, we have peace with God. He's no longer, his wrath is no longer resting upon us. Because in the gospel, his wrath went upon Jesus Christ. So that his love would go upon us. Why did Jesus have to have wrath fall upon him? Because God is just. He's not only loving, but he's just. And every sin must receive its reward. Otherwise, God would not be a just judge. So in order to maintain and establish his justice, he punishes all of our sins. But the punishment doesn't fall on us. It falls on Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are reconciled with God. He's not only uh, no longer angry with us, but he has loved us and cherished us, so we are reconciled vertically. Because of that peace, <coughs> that objective peace with God, we have subjective peace, peace in our hearts. And because of the peace this way, we also have peace this way with one another. And Paul works this out uh, later in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2. And he shows that just as the blood of Christ took away Uh, the wrath of God uh, from upon our heads. That same blood of Christ has united Jew and Gentile together, has united uh, historic enemies and made them one family. And when you see a famous conflict in the world somewhere, whether it's North Koreans and South Koreans or it's the Bosnians and somebody else or it's the, uh, the, the, the Syrians and the Israelis, Uh, whatever it is in the world, the place where you'll see people really coming together is in the gospel. I remember in uh, Lausanne 3 in South Africa about uh, five years ago, a testimony given by uh, an Arab and a Jew standing right next to each other telling uh, 4,500 people how they loved each other in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the only way they could possibly be reconciled with their 1,500-year history of hostility. It's in Christ that we're brought together. And that's the reason that in our churches, our relationships are crucial. And especially when you see human boundaries like male and female or rich and poor or black and white or Hispanic uh, and, and Asian or whatever it is, we've got to demonstrate the gospel because it brings peace vertically and it brings peace horizontally. And then lastly in the scriptures, what you find with this gift of peace is that one day uh, we will have peace with the entire cosmos. So children will be able to crawl over the hole of a snake, we're told in Isaiah. No danger, no harm on his holy mountain because he brought peace even in the, uh, in the animal world and in the inanimate creation. That's the peace that comes from this simple gospel. We have peace now and we have the fullness of our peace later. So you see how grand and glorious this gospel is. Now we looked at the idea of what the gospel is. Let's stop for just a minute and describe the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Euangelion in the Greek. EU means good or well. And angelion means angel or message. So it's good message, good news. So the gospel is something that's announced. It's news. And what is the news? Well, Jesus, you remember, gave that to us. He went about preaching the gospel. What was it? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So it's about a kingdom. Ah, so the news is that a new kingdom is being established. You know, we're having a mayoral election. Well, either we'll have the previous king the King A.C. Wharton uh, inaugurated again, or we'll have another king. And if there's another king, there'll be a big announcement. New administration is here. That's basically what the gospel is. New administration, new mayor in town. Mayor Jesus uh, is now the king of everything. That's the big announcement. 
it wouldn't be good news unless the announcement continued because we've been the enemies of the new mayor. We've sinned against him. We've despised him. We put him up on a cross naked and put nails in his hands and his feet. And now he's back. Guess who's in trouble? You. Whoever sins put him on that cross. You'd be in a heap of trouble. So it ain't good news that he's the king unless he's offering amnesty. And he does. It's not just news that the kingdom has come. It's news that amnesty is available to anyone who will receive him and what he's done on our behalf. So if you receive the work that he did on Calvary's cross to pay for your sins against himself, then you have full amnesty, not only amnesty, you can't, you're not just allowed to live within the city, but you now have a personal, intimate, brotherly relationship with the king. There's the gospel. And gospel ministry includes the announcement of that gospel and a lifestyle and mission that goes with that gospel. That's gospel life or gospel ministry. So the gospel itself, Paul says, he was set apart for that purpose in in verse 1. Now we come to verse 8. Verse 8 through verse 15 is what's known, and you see it in your ESV footnotes, it is what's known as the thanksgiving. And this is typical in, once again, first century epistolary form, that you have the salutation and then thanksgiving And then in verse 16 and 17, we're given the major theme, uh, so say the scholars, of the entire book. So you get verses 16 and 17, and then the rest of the book is an exposition of verses 16 and 17. That's what some say. So in these verses, we are going to get the essence of Paul's life and message as a response of uh, as a resp- his response to being called as an apostle, a servant of Jesus Christ. So, with that, let's pick up with verse eight and read. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, having said that, I'm sure everyone's wondering, would he call me a Greek or a barbarian? I don't know. Um, uh, Now, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, And also to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, let's take a look. Sorry about my voice, but I I think we're good good to go here. If if your ears can stand it, my voice can stand it. Uh, What we're going to see here are what we're calling gospel obligations. So, as a result of the great gift (coughs) that Paul has been given in the gospel, his salvation, (coughs) and in his calling as an apostle, we're going to see that his life is now obligated to do something. And guys, this is really important right from the beginning. Let's just pause a moment and think about gospel obligations. When folks study Romans, they study it carefully and they study it accurately, especially when in just a few weeks we get to Romans chapter 3 and we're looking at what we call the heart of the heart of the gospel. And that is that we are made right or justified before God simply through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us in the substitutionary atonement on the cross. Now, there, there you're getting at the heart of the heart. 
the questions will always arise uh, asking if indeed then all of our sins are already forgiven regardless of our performance, then aren't we encouraged to go sin all the more? And of course, Paul takes up this question in Romans 6 precisely. Why does he take it up? He takes up the question in Romans 6 because if you accurately understand what he's saying in Romans 3, you will naturally ask that question. So if your understanding of Romans 3 doesn't lead you to ask that question, then you don't understand Romans 3. He is really saying that all your sins are forgiven by the work of Jesus Christ, not by your work. That's what he's really saying. Therefore, it's logical that you would ask the question, shouldn't we go sin all the more? Now, when we get to Romans 6 in a couple of months, you have to wait. You'll, you'll see that he has an answer for that. And his answer makes it really clear that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ does not lead us to unrighteousness and to immorality. Oh, contraire, hop along. It leads to righteousness and to a closer walk with God and to conformity to the will of God expressed in his moral law in the scriptures. Now we'll see that Paul makes that argument and he'll show us how that works. On the one hand, if you think like a pagan, yeah, it seems like you're free to sin, but when you really think like a Christian and have a full Christian experience, then that's an absurd question, as you'll see when we get to Romans 6. But now, I think in Romans 1, you already beget, you, you begin to get the answer to that question. Paul is saying that as a result of having experienced this gospel of grace and peace in his life, this definitive, that will never be taken away from him, that is unconditional. And that's the way he describes grace. It is by its very nature unmerited and unconditional. That's what makes it gracious. He is called by the grace of God. He is saved by the grace of God. And then he says, I'm under obligation. Now, uh, you say, does that make any sense? Of course it makes sense. Did your mother love you because you were beautiful? Hardly. All these people talk about these cute babies. Yeah, they're cute because they're so ugly you can hardly believe it. <laughs> you know, we, nobody's born in this, in this life meriting your mother's love. She just loves you. And that's the reason you love her. And if you have any sense at all, you have a moral obligation to take care of your mother. My mother's 95, still living. I have a moral obligation to call my mama, write my mama. Take care of my mama, be sure she's well cared for. I have a moral obligation because of what my mama did for me, if nothing else. And I certainly have a moral obligation because of what God's done for me. That's the bigger obligation. So you see how the Christian ethic works. Of course we have moral obligations. Of course we walk a straight and narrow. And we're obligated to that because something phenomenal has been done for us. That just blows your mind how you've been loved. Now, let's look first of all in verses 8 through 13 in his thanksgiving, and we'll see we are obligated to love each other. It begins with our obligation to love the family of God. You can see this in Paul's life. He was loved and included in the family by the Lord, and now, now therefore he's obligated to love the family of God. And notice how he does love them. First of all, by commending them, faithful commendation. He says, I thank, first thing I want to start with here, I thank God for you. Why? Well, I've got a specific reason. Because your faith is proclaimed all over the world. I've traveled the Roman world. And I keep hearing about you folks. You know, I preach in a lot of missions conferences. And when I can honestly say it, I always tell those folks, I already know about you. And it's true. When folks are involved in expanding the kingdom of God and proclaiming his mission around the world, you're known by many other believers around the nation and around the world. And I can honestly go into many of these churches and say, I already know about you. Your reputation precedes you. And that's what Paul is saying. There's something special about you folks. I've been hearing about it. Now, of course, Paul's good friends, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, and remember he's writing this from Corinth, 
And you remember that Priscilla and Aquila were in Corinth, and they took Paul in first thing. So Paul immediately was helped by Priscilla and Aquila, who also were tent makers. Remember, that's undoubtedly the reason Paul went to see them, because he was going to get a part-time job to support his ministry. He goes to the tent making shop. There's Priscilla and Aquila, and lo and behold, they're already believers from Rome. And they were scattered from Rome uh, because of the great uh, expulsion of Jewish folks from, from Rome in the previous decade. And so Paul has good friends with Priscilla and Aquila. Well, of course, they told him all about Rome and all about the Roman Christians. Paul says, I already know about you. Your faith is being proclaimed everywhere. And he commends them for that. And you see, you have an obligation. When you become a believer and you are engrafted into the family to begin to look around and to be ready to give thanks to God for things that you see in other people and to tell them you thank God for them and what they're doing. That's part of our moral obligation is to have our eyes open and then to open our mouths just as we open our hearts toward one another. So faithful commendation. Secondly, notice that this obligation leads to prayer. And who knows how many man hours of prayer Paul logged while in the prison. We all know that we're the beneficiaries of God's providence for having Paul imprisoned because we get letters like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and, and so on, uh, Paul's prison letters. But I'm telling you, we also are the great beneficiaries of Paul's imprisonment through his prayers because it slowed him down and he had time to pray. And I've had you know, some of our senior members who are in the nursing home and they'll say to me on occasion, you know, pastor, I'm just ready to go because I'm just here on this bed. I can hardly get up and I don't have anything to do. You go, oh, really? Yes, you do. And uh, as long as you've got your mind, and you seem to have enough of a mind yet to still complain, as long as you've got your, as long as you've got your mind, let me give you a prayer list. And I know you can't remember from day to day, but we'll just remind you every day we've got a way to do that. And let me give you a prayer list, and I want you to be a prayer warrior on this bed until you draw your last breath. And uh, gentlemen, this is, this is mission. The mission of the gospel is fueled and empowered by prayer. And you can't just run out there and go evangelize people or just pay your bill to the missions program and send the missionaries out and have anything of value happen. Paul knew this. If Paul became a Christian, and he knew this for sure, he became a Christian because of the grace of God. There was certainly nothing in Paul's life that would have made him think or anybody else think he'd ever be a believer in Jesus. So he knew that his salvation came by way of miraculous conversion from the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul had it clear in his mind. The only way this is going to happen with other people out there is through miraculous intervention from the living God. Therefore, I must apply to him about them before I talk to them about him. He has to prepare the heart and he has to convert the soul. And my message can only bear fruit if it is miraculously attended by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul knew this. So his missional life was bathed in prayer. And he could honestly say, look how he puts it here. He says, no kidding. I'm not just saying this like a lot of guys do. Hey, I'm praying for you. No, he says, look at the way he puts it. He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. He says, God is my witness that I'm telling you the truth. I have prayed for you without ceasing. Without ceasing, I mention you always, without ceasing, always, in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now, we pick up in that comment and some other comments that Paul had gotten word that they were upset that he hadn't shown up yet. And maybe he had indicated he was going to try to be there earlier and didn't make it. And they're saying, hey, do you consider us important or not? Are we part of the church? I mean... You're the Apostle Paul. We haven't seen you yet. Never met you. You've been out there for, you know, 20 years uh, evangelizing. Never, you never came to Rome. This, uh, Paul, hint, capital city. Emperor lives here. You might want to make a visit to Rome. Here we are. You know, so Paul knew that they were probably a little antagonized by his lack of being there. He says, look, as God is my witness, I pray unceasingly, always mentioning you, the Church of Rome, in my prayers, and I have specifically prayed that he would open the door for me to be there. Now, in ministry, everybody doesn't always understand your motives, 
But the one that you want to be sure uh, you're accounting to with your motives is the living God. And if God is your witness and he knows what your intent is, you can leave everybody else to interpret however they want. But in love, your obligation is to give them the opportunity to believe the truth if they will. So Paul was telling them the truth. And if you want to believe it, you will. If you don't, you can be a grousing Christian. That's fine. But I'm telling you, I always pray for you. And Paul knew that prayer was part of the love language in the brotherhood. And guys, uh, for one, that's one reason that eventually here in a couple of weeks, we'd love for as many of you as possible to be in some small groups. Why? Because when you share your opinions with each other and you interact with each other, you are able to commend each other on your walk with Christ. You're also empowered to intervene on each other when you see something that needs to be corrected. You're also able to pray for each other and engage gospel ministry and community through these groups. Paul commended and prayed. And then notice, thirdly, fellowship. It's not just long distance. It's not just academic. It's not just letter writing. It's not just teaching. Paul wants to be with them in fellowship. He says, I long to see you. Now, why does he long to see them? Let's look at what Christian fellowship is like. It's fine if we start off talking about Ole Miss football. That's fine. Or Alabama football, though nobody this week wants to talk about it. And a lot of times at church, see somebody at the door. That's fine. Talk about your golf score on Saturday. But real Christian fellowship, look what it involves. Paul says, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. And what would that gift be? Well, clearly. I mean, what if we had the Apostle Paul visiting him in Bible study? I mean, we'd all be here early. We'd get here, you know, two hours early to be sure we got our parking place and a seat. And, and we would uh, listen with bated breath and we'd want to ask questions. We'd never let him go. We'd hang on to him. We'd all be lined up wanting to talk and ask questions of him. He would be imparting something very important to us. What? Well, in Paul's case, this immense and deep knowledge of the Word of God and of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to impart to them what he has to offer. So in fellowship, uh, you've been given gifts and you're looking for opportunities to impart what you've been given. For some of us, it means you'll teach an adult Sunday school class. For some of us, we'll keep the nursery. For some of us, we'll help with the finances. With some of us, we'll help park cars. Some of us, will preach. There are all different kinds of gifts that we use in the body, but we're looking for ways to impart a gift to the fellowship. That's what the fellowship means. It's an exchange, a koinonia, an exchange of what I have with what you have. It's a sharing. That's what fellowship means or koinonia means. It's a sharing of of life and possessions. So it's family life. Paul catches himself and he says, not just that I impart something to you, but of course that I get something from you too. Now, Paul's in ministry, gospel ministry, and one of the hazards of being in Christian leadership, as so many of you are, is that you get in the modality of always giving and all of your relationships are based on your giving something to somebody. You're teaching somebody. You're counseling somebody. You're serving somebody. And all your relationships are based on that. And that's happened to Paul. You can see him catch himself. He's always giving. He's in prison for the gospel. He's serving people. He's a slave. And he's pretty much defined his relationships that way. But he catches himself. And he said, no, I need you too. Now, you, you, you catch him catching himself again in Philippians chapter 4 when he says, I need you, but I don't have to have you. <laughs> Because the Lord is my contentment. So there's a tension here. The only one you have to have is the Lord. But on the other hand, the Lord uses one another to teach you too. So if you're a teacher, a Bible leader, a small group discussion leader, and you're not growing as a result of that experience, something's wrong. Paul was always growing and developing as a result of this uh, bilateral relationship he had in fellowship is to share his spiritual gifts with them and to receive their spiritual uh, gifts to him. Uh, some of you know that Ravi Zacharias is going to be here in January at our Christian Life Conference, and we've had him only a few times, and every time it's just been absolutely wonderful. Uh, if you can find a place in the back of the balcony somewhere on Sunday night when you've gone to your own church, uh, come join us. And in fact, he'll be here on Friday and Saturday as well. Wonderful preacher and one of our favorites. But I remember when Ravi was here last time, he said, you know, uh, I'm an evangelist. 
And so I, I don't often get to be in evangelical churches. Most of my gatherings are with people who don't believe what I'm saying and have hostile questions for me afterwards. And he said, just as a matter of my own spiritual development, uh, I'm just committed that every quarter or so, I've got to come to a warm, hospitable, evangelical environment like this one and preach the gospel with people who believe me, just to get encouragement for myself. Then I can be launched back out as an evangelist. Well, at the least, the Apostle Paul is going to get that, that kind of encouragement. You know what he's preaching? He can see the fruit of that preaching that it really is true in the church of Rome. So uh, he is obligated and we are obligated to love each other. But now notice secondly, in verses 14 through 17, as we get more to the heart of the matter of Romans, we are obligated to love the lost. Paul says, I'm not only coming to you, I'm coming to your friends. I'm coming to the others, those who are sophisticated and those who are not sophisticated. And then, of course, we know in Romans 15, he's going to say, I want to go beyond Rome to Spain, and I want your help to get me there. So this is a missionary prayer letter introducing himself and the gospel so that he can ask for support to get him on to the, to the unbelievers in Spain. Paul is obligated not just to the church. He is obligated to the church, but not just to the church as a result of having been converted. He is now also obligated to the world because of his conversion. Now let's look at how that works. Look at verse 14. Is, uh, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Look at this word, I am under obligation. Here's what he's saying. He is saying that he actually owes something to the wise and to the foolish. Now, if you read Stott, he makes a very nice explanation of this. He says, you know, there are two ways in which you can owe somebody something. If you give me $10,000 and you loan it to me, then I owe it back to you. That's clear. That's one sort of owing. On the other hand, if you give me $10,000 and you say, would you please give it to him? Then I owe the $10,000 to him, not because he loaned it to me, but because you gave it to me for the purpose of giving it to him. And Stott says, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Lord gave me the gospel not only for my own conversion, but the Lord, says Paul, gave me the gospel for the conversion of the world. And therefore, I owe it to the world because God has simply chosen me as the instrument to take the gospel to the world. Now you say, well, good for the apostle. But brothers, what he's saying in the scriptures is that it's true of you too. When you receive the gospel for your own salvation, you receive a deposit of enormous untold wealth that has been commissioned through you to go to the world. And you owe the world this gospel because it's God's gospel for the world through you. Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There you have it. When you're called in conversion, you like the apostle get your commission. Paul got his commission to the Gentiles on the road to Damascus. You got your commission to the world at your conversion. Come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And Jesus says to all of his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You got that at your conversion. You got your great commission at your great conversion. So we are obligated to the world by virtue of the gospel. And you say, really? You know, some people I hear them say now, these people who are called sort of the new, the new grace school. The New Grace School, this is, uh, I, I, let me critique the Presbyterians for a moment. Uh, I'll get to the rest of you later. Before this, before this study in Romans is out, I assure you I will have offended every one of you on one Thursday morning or another. But let's just start with the Presbyterians. Uh, there's, a, there's a tendency among some Presbyterians to think that, you know, when we come to Christ and he has justified us apart from our own works, that we're really no longer obligated to do anything. 
that we're saved apart from the law, and therefore the law has nothing to do with us. And furthermore, if you tell me I ought to do something, that's not gospel-centered. And there are some Presbyterian circles now where you have a very difficult time teaching the Ten Commandments without being accused of being moralistic. And I've been in some of those environments. And I want to say those are very dangerous. And I don't think they're Pauline or or Christ-centered at all. Uh, The Christian life includes the law. We're not justified by obeying the law, but once we're justified, we're sanctified as we walk with Christ in the law. And we obey his will. That's what we want to do. We're obligated. And some of the grace school will accuse people of saying things like I just said and say, there you go with your debtor's ethic. They call it a debtor's ethic. And they think it's wrong and emotionally damaging that my ethic is because I owe instead of by the fact that I'm just responding to grace. uh, uh, Paul is responding to grace. And in responding to grace, he's saying, I owe the world the gospel. I owe God my obedience. Yes, debtor's ethic, for sure. The Christian ethic is a debtor's ethic. And that's what Paul is saying. I am under obligation. So you see how in Christian salvation, yes, you're justified freely by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone. But the law comes into play immediately in your life. You're bound morally and even emotionally because you're in love. There you go. It's, it's the response of love. So we are obligated. Now notice, first of all, we're, we're obligated regardless of human differences. Now, uh, commonly in Paul's teaching, you will get the distinction between Jew and Gentile. And of course, that's the dominant human distinction that he continually addresses. And of course, that's very useful for us. I mean, we have several nations and ethnic backgrounds represented in this room. How wonderful that we're commanded to lay all that aside and be family with one another regardless of those backgrounds and regardless of our socioeconomic background. But here, Paul is talking about a cultural difference that has more to do with sophistication levels and even educational levels. And he's saying, I am obligated to all levels. So, you know, sometimes in, in our evangelism, we're thinking, you know, I want to get my buddies, you know. Uh, they're all Auburn fans just like me, you know. And so I'll just get all of them and we'll all be Christians and have an Auburn Christian fellowship right here at Second Presbyterian Church. And uh, the Apostle Paul says, no, I'm obligated to the, the prostitute. I'm obligated to the, the, the gay guy. I'm obligated to the drunk. I'm obligated to the guy who's unemployed. I'm obligated to everybody. Equally obligated to everybody because of the gospel. And I make no distinctions. So we have a love and an eagerness to evangelize everybody. Now, uh, by nature, we don't have an equal love and eagerness. By nature. So everybody here is struggling with it. What I'm saying is that the gospel commands us to engage that struggle and increasingly to become men who see people regardless of background. And we realize we have an obligation to the store clerk as well as an obligation to my law partner to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's, he's obligated regardless of human differences. Secondly, notice that he's obligated to love, love the lost by preaching the gospel. Now this is when we move into the major theme of what's going on in Romans. So regardless of human differences, by preaching the gospel. And here's the theme. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He is eager. Why? Well, we've already seen because he has an obligation. It's, it's his love for Christ that is being expressed when he evangelizes. But he goes on to give two other reasons. First of all, <coughs> he is eager because the gospel is the power of God. Verse 16. He's eager because it's powerful. The, God, the word here is a word for dynamite, dunamis. It's dynamite. It blows things up. I can tell you from personal experience, he says. It blew my life up. It turned me inside out, right side up, and, inside, you know, and so on. Put me on the right path. It just completely transformed my life. That's what the gospel is. 
And brothers, there are all kinds of conversions in this world. People can convert to Marxism. They can convert to Islam. They can convert to atheism. They can convert to all kinds of things. But none of them is the dynamic, miraculous change that's involved from the inside out where God changes our very nature and ambitions and aspirations and changes our destiny for eternity like the gospel. And Paul says, I'm eager to preach it because it's the power of God unto salvation. It gets people from death to life. It gets people from the planet earth to the new heavens and the new earth. And there's nothing else that does that that gets them from death to life. There's nothing else that gets them from this planet and this decaying body into a resurrected body in the presence of Jesus Christ. Nothing else does that. There's nothing that transforms a person morally and spiritually from the inside out but the gospel. There's no substitute that works. There are all kinds of counterfeits that are propounded by various religious groups and non-religious groups, but none of them work. This is the power of God for salvation for both the Jew, who is the first ethnic heir of the gospel, and for the Greek, he says. And of course, I'm the one who is specifically called to reach the Gentiles among the apostles. Now, you'll notice, even though he's the apostle to the Gentiles, he always starts with the Jews. Why? Out of respect. If I'm coming to Memphis to hold an evangelistic campaign, I'm going to start with the church, with the people who are gathered in Jesus' name, and I'm going to evangelize them first because they were the children of believers. They were given promises in their baptisms, uh, except for you Baptists here who don't believe in infant baptism, but promises that through the generations God would bless. And so I'm going to go to them first. And when they reject me or I've led as many to Christ as will, and then I'm going out to the, to the non-church. That's what Paul did in every city where he went. He started with the Jews in the synagogues. And he went there first and said, your Messiah has arrived. Let me tell you about him. And then eventually he gets kicked out. And then he goes to the street corner and begins to reach the Greeks. So he does it in proper, respectful order. It's for the Jew first and then for the Greek. And he says, in both cases, it's the only thing that transforms Jewish traditions, holding all the festivals, being circumcised at the right time in the right place, uh, keeping the Sabbath, all those things that Jews do will not transform uh, anything to do, anybody to do anything. It won't transform from the heart out. It'll only conform you to certain religious traditions. Only the gospel will transform a Jewish life. He says the same thing about the pagans. Certainly pagan religion with all of its sexual immorality and social injustice, it's not going to transform anything until the gospel comes and lifts a person out of that pagan religion. He says, in both cases, this is the power of God. Now, he, he says, interestingly, in the beginning of verse 16, you'll notice, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why would he put it that way? Uh, this is called litotes, L-I-T-O-T-E-S, litotes, and it's using a double negative to make a positive. Uh, I ain't afraid of you. That's, that's litities, which is to say, I'm being very bold with you, you know, but I'm not afraid. That's a double negative. Here he's saying, I'm not ashamed, which is to say, I'm proud of the gospel. But why does he put it in double negative form? Well, most scholars, and you'll pick this up with Stott and others, would say the reason he puts it that way is because he and we are Tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Why are we tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, I'll tell you why from my own experience. First of all, it starts with a pretty bad diagnosis of your neighbor. Have you noticed? You're a sinner and you're going to hell. There you go. Oh, thank you, sir. I'm so glad you came to preach the gospel to me. Uh, You know, why don't you just go to hell yourself is what they usually say. Uh, So the gospel is a, it starts off with kind of a negative message, doesn't it? I mean, well, it starts off with God as creator, but then pretty soon you're into sin. And I haven't won too many friends or influenced people through that negative portion of the gospel. It's kind of embarrassing to have to strip somebody down, you know, this, this uh, wonderful customer of yours. Strip him down naked, you know, leave him there and see how you do the next time you want to sell him something, you know? So there's something shameful that we feel about the gospel. It, it exposes us. It reveals our dark secrets. 
It's humiliating. It's shameful. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Well, why else would he be tempted to be ashamed? Well, because look at the solution. A dead Jew on a tree that the powerful Roman government put there as an insurrectionist. That's your salvation? Wonderful. Great. A dead Jew on a tree who was a criminal in a province of the Roman Empire. Wonderful. Great solution you've got. The Greek says that's absolutely ridiculous. And then you're telling me this. That dead Jew on a tree in a little province of the Roman Empire got up on the third day. Yeah, he just just woke up. Just resurrected. And then, zippo, he went into heaven 40 days later. Oh, yeah, great story, great story. You know, I've already always told unbelievers, I really feel sorry for you because stuff I'm going to tell you, it just, you know, it sounds impossible. It sounds like Disneyland, you know, forget it. Disney World, I'm sorry <laughs> to reveal my age. Uh, it's Disney World. It's, it's a fantasy. It's crazy. It's, it's foolish. It's a little shameful to have a, a myth like that that you're going to give to the world as the solution for this huge sinful problem that you just exposed. That's the reason you're tempted to be ashamed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. And the reason I'm not ashamed of it is because, number one, it's true. And number two, it is the only message, the only dynamic in the universe that ever changes a life or ever saves a soul for eternal life. This is absolutely essential and necessary for eternal life for anybody in the world. That's why I'm obligated. That's why I'm eager. I'm eager to preach this gospel that is shameful in the eyes of the world because in the eyes of God, it is the power that saves his chosen people. So you'll see he is eager to preach because of the power of God. But now notice secondly, verse 17, a verse that sometimes we leave off, that he's also eager to preach because in the gospel is... The righteousness of God. I say it's because it produces the righteousness. You could say because it reveals. Because it reveals the righteousness of God. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, once again, if you read Stott, he raises a very important question here that we'll be coming back to with regard to some of the debates about how justification actually works. Uh, And uh, we'll get into this later. But here... Uh, The question is, what is the righteousness of God? Paul says, some scholars say, that the righteousness of God is his own righteousness uh, from offering salvation to his people. And you'll see that in Isaiah and in the Psalms where the righteousness of God and the salvation of God are mentioned synonymously. Some say it's the righteousness of God in being faithful to his covenant, his covenant promises that he promised you that if you're in the covenant, he will save you and therefore he does save you and therefore he's righteous because he's faithful to what he promised. But Stott says dominantly this third idea is the one that Paul seems to be stressing here and I would agree. And that is that this righteousness is the gift of God. It's the gift of righteousness that he gives to the believer. It's not primarily his own righteousness inherently, It's the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness that God gives as a status to the believer. Now, in Philippians 3, he makes this very explicit. In Romans 3, in my opinion, he makes it very explicit. What we're talking about is the righteousness of the believer. And you'll see when we get to Romans 3, Paul says, no one can attain this righteousness, this human righteousness, by obeying the law. However... Romans 3.21, but God has revealed righteousness from heaven. And the word righteousness is the same word for justification. So it's the justification of God. It's what justifies you is the righteousness that you need to get into heaven is given to you as a gift. So Stott says, why do we need to choose among the three? Let's just take all three ideas, subjective genitive, objective genitive, the righteousness that's inherent in God and the righteousness that he gives to justified men through faith. And it's all true. But I think the dominant idea is the righteousness that he gives to men. Here's what Paul's saying. 
as foolish as this gospel seems, let me tell you why it's powerful. Because in that gospel, when a person believes that gospel, God's status of justifying a man to be admissible into heaven is granted in toto. And only the gospel does that. Only by believing in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, does one gain a new status that allows him to enter heaven. And that's the reason Paul goes on to say, it's revealed from faith for faith. That is, out of faith into faith, literally, in the Greek. So, as some say, it begins with faith and ends with faith. It's all faith everywhere. Or as some would say, it begins with faith and leads to more faith. Or you could even say, it begins in faith and leads to faithfulness or obedience to the law. So the word faith and faithfulness in the English is, it comes from the same word in the Greek. So Paul is saying it's all by faith in the gospel that this new righteousness is attained. And then, of course, he quotes Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And, of course, what we want to learn in Romans. First of all, what is it I'm to believe? Secondly, what comes to me by virtue of believing? And thirdly, what life is to be lived by faith as I go forward in this life? And Paul's addressing all these things. It's by faith uh, from beginning to end. It's from faith for faith. And this is the gospel. So <coughs> Paul is saying I'm under obligation. Because I've been saved and because I've been called by the gospel, called by God, I'm obligated to the church and I'm obligated to the world. And the world tells me that the thing that I'm giving them from God is foolishness and they don't want it. And they tell me I should be ashamed of it because it's so small and puny and insignificant and and too fabulous for belief. But I'm telling you, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm going to keep preaching it because nobody's going to be saved without it. Because it is the power of God for salvation for everybody, including my enemies. And furthermore, it reveals the righteousness of God. This is where God's justifying uh, gift is given. is through faith in that gospel. Now, the rest of Romans expounds that great idea, which is so profound and complex and beautiful as it applies to every aspect of our life, as we shall see as we go forward. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this gospel and thank you for the gospel obligations that come with the gospel for these obligations and the fulfillment of them. Make us sons of God. And we are grateful for this. And we pray that we may walk with you as sons and that we may fulfill the obligations to love the church through faithful commendation, prayer, and mutual fellowship that we will fulfill our obligation to the world by sharing the gospel regardless of human differences and with a knowledge and a confidence in the power of the gospel and in the promise that you will justify men and women and boys and girls through this simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, we bow before you in humble adoration and make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.